we can be inspired to do good by a positive example. We can be seduced to do evil by an example which is negative. Usually someone who excels in sports as a hero or someone who excels in playing the piano or some other skill, be it sports or music or whatever, was inspired by listening to someone or watching someone. So we accept the principle that a positive example is very beneficial to our lives. That is also true in the area of giving in the Lord's work. We heard in the scripture that was read earlier about the Macedonians. They are presented as an example of people who gave in such a way and we are to um, emulate them. Personally, I have found passages like this, 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 9, many, many other passages has removed from my mind any justification I might have for not giving or for giving less than I should. In fact, there are over 2,000 verses in the scripture that deal with this issue that set forth principles relating to money and possessions. Many of them are warnings. Don't put your trust in wealth. Don't be proud about your wealth. Don't be selfish. Don't pursue wealth because it will lead to spiritual destruction. But there are also the blessings associated with understanding how God wants us to use wealth in our lives and in the world. So as we look at the text this morning, ask yourself this question. Am I like the Macedonian Christians in my attitude toward possessions, and giving? Do I have the same intense desire to contribute as these people have? Could, you put, could Paul put our names in here? Could, in place of Macedonia, could he put your name and my name? So what kind of example are you when it comes to giving? You say, well, pastor, nobody knows my giving habits, so how can I be an example? Uh, that's a very private matter between me and God, and frankly, that's the way I want it to be. I understand that. I understand that we are not to present ourselves in such a way that people praise us and exalt us. I understand that we're not to brag in this area. But at the same time, there must be some way where we, you and I can become an example of gracious givers. Uh, what if your children were to ask you, Mom and Dad, do you tithe? How would you respond? Would you say, don't you have something better to do than ask me questions like that? What about a young believer or a, a young couple? And they want to know, what does the Bible teach about finances? Uh, would they come to us? Could they watch us? What about our lifestyles? Is there something about our lifestyle that reflects an attitude of contentment and of generosity. In order to understand why Paul, or why Paul says what he says in the first uh, seven verses, we need to know the context of uh, his uh, bragging 
about the Macedonians. Uh, in chapter 8 and following, in, at least in uh, chapter 8, verses 8 and following, we know from history at least that the people in Judea, Jerusalem of course, were suffering persecution. So there was doubtless economic reversals because of that. They lost their incomes. They were in a destitute um, situation. There was no safety net, welfare safety net in that culture. So in his travels, he informed other believers, many other places, about the dire condition that existed back in Judea. And he asked the other churches to help out. You can readily imagine that financial assistance from Gentiles will go a long way in uniting Jew and Gentile who had been hostile to one another for centuries. The Christians at Corinth had indicated, yes, we're willing to participate. You can count us in. They had made promises, and now a year had passed, no gift from the Corinthian church. Nothing had come. So Paul is addressing that issue here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, just as you abound in everything, in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, in all earnestness, this is verse 7, in love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious gift also. He says that they should finish doing, verse 11, what was promised a year before and that uh, Titus would be sent to, to take care of that matter. So here we have an issue of promise and no performance. And we see the same thing addressed in chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Now, if you were to ask me, what was the root cause of this, uh, this delay, or perhaps the reluctance of the Corinthians to participate in the offering for the Jerusalem church? And I think the root cause was the sad spiritual state of that church. If you know anything about First and Second Corinthians, Paul is addressing infighting, lawsuits, immoral behavior, a proud display of certain spiritual gifts, factions, and so on, and so on. Warren Wiersbe said, if a church is not spiritual, it is not the generous. So Paul knew it would be a real challenge to get the Corinthians to participate. He lifted his appeal to the highest possible level. He taught them to give according to grace. So that becomes the root motivation, the inspiration for all of us to give, the grace of God to us. Giving with joy, first of all, acknowledges the sovereignty of God. The reason I asked the children those questions was because I want them to begin thinking, and parents, it's your responsibility to, to teach this, that everything they have comes from God. The house they live in, the toys they have, the warm beds they sleep in, the food they eat, everything, everything is a gift from God. And we need to acknowledge that in our personal lives. God is the source, the giver, the owner of all that we are and have. Our, the very air we breathe, the very ability to breathe is a gift from God. Our health, our giftedness, our abilities, our skills, our jobs, our possessions, they all come from one place. They come from God. He owns. We manage. He is the master. We are the stewards. And we must give an account of what he has given us. That's seen quite 
clearly in the parables of the talents in Matthew 5 and 14 and following. So the implications are profound. If we accept the truth and hold the conviction that God is sovereign over everything we are and have and, and own, in a sense, we shouldn't even use the term own because we don't own it, then we should be using the blessings of God for eternal purposes, not for temporal purposes. Even our ability to acquire wealth with differs from person to person comes from God. Deuteronomy 8.18, you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. The opportunities, the jobs, the incomes, our skills, our brain power. And he could take all this away. He could take, he could take that job away in a moment's time. So whatever amount of money you and I earn, all of it, all of it, 100% of it comes from God. And all of it, 100% of it, is to be used for his glory. That's in recognition of, of the sovereignty of God. Giving with joy is motivated by the grace of God. And now we get to our text here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The word grace is found many, many times here. It's found in verse 1, it's found in verse 6, it's found in verse 7, it's found in verse 9. When, grace, when the grace of God grips our heart, giving will not be a problem. It will be the natural, eager, joyful response of what God has given us in his mercy. Ray Stedman writes, the only true motive for giving is the grace of God, the goodness of God to you. He says, if God has not done anything for you, then for goodness sake, don't give him a dime. But if he has, then pour it out according to the measure you have received. He continues, in the New Testament, giving is never legislated upon us. It is not laid on us as a duty that we have to do in order to pay expenses in the church. It is given to us rather as a privilege to express the gratitude of our hearts for the grace that God has already given. So how can we tell if we are practicing the grace of giving? Well, we will give in spite of our circumstances. Notice verses 1 and 2 again. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of our Lord Jesus, uh, grace of God given to the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. The economic conditions that the Macedonian Christians were facing was very, very serious. They weren't probably much better off than their brothers and sisters in Judea. But they gave joyfully and they gave generously. Now, why did they do that? What inspired them? The key is verse 1. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you not the great incomes of the people in Macedonia, the grace of God which has been given to the churches in Macedonia. Their generosity was a demonstration of God's grace. It was motivated by grace. It flowed from grace. So the reason they gave was not because of the goodness of their heart, not because they had some excess that they didn't, excess that they didn't need, not because of mere human kindness, not because 
of any man-centered desire to be thought of as being a noble person. They gave because of the grace of God. I believe that human giving, just human giving, seldom reaches the level of sacrifice that has any impact upon our lifestyles. I'm sure that we all give here. The question is not do we give, do we give motivated by grace? Do we give sacrificially? Do we forego personal purchases so that funds are freed up to give away to the work of God? Have we chosen a more modest standard of living far below our income so that we may give it away? MacArthur says a heartful longing and earnest desire to give generously and sacrificially flows out of a transformed heart. Several other godly traits uh, will become apparent when we are in the grip of grace, a desire to seek God's kingdom before anything else, affections that are fixed on heaven, not on earth, love that is centered in God and not the world, a disposition that hungers and thirsts after righteousness, a spirit of gratitude and contentment, a desire to obey the word of God and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, the desire of the capacity to love and forgive others, even those who have hurt us, a heart for ministry, to name a few. Giving is another effect of transforming grace. A f- uh, familiar portion of scripture, Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse uh, 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. It is God's at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God works in the surrendered heart to accomplish his good pleasure, and he gives us strength to overcome the pull of earthly pleasures. But notice Verse 2, I find this to be, well, it blows me away. In a great deal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Read that verse over and over and over again. Every phrase speaks of supernatural grace, great trial of affliction, not merely difficult circumstances, but excruciatingly painful, stressful circumstances. And deep poverty means rock-bottom destitution. Out of that environment, out of that reality, they gave. The fact is that in this church, none of us are facing this kind of economic pressure upon our lives. The Macedonians ignored all excuses for not giving. They did not opt out, even though, humanly speaking, we would say they had a a right to do so. Warren Wiersbe says, great affliction and deep poverty plus grace produces abounding joy, abundant joy, and abounding liberality. When our hearts are filled with the grace of God, we will always find a way to give. When our hearts are not filled with the grace of God, we'll always find excuses not to give. But it seems to me from this passage and other passages that difficult situation is never an excuse for not obeying God, not only in giving but in other areas of our lives. 
From time to time, we've always come up with reasons why we cannot give at this time. Well, it's always time to give something when God's grace is working in our lives. They gave joyfully the abundance of their joy. Now, you expect them not to have joy. You look at their circumstances, great ordeal of affliction. Things were tough. Economically, socially, things were difficult for them. When we look at the uh, physical facts of their life, they were not in very good shape at all. But when you look at the spiritual and emotional part of their life, they were in great shape. They gave not grudgingly or reluctantly, but willingly. The Bible says God loves cheerful givers, not tearful givers. Last year, I chose as my verse for the year, 2009, 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything you may have an abundance for every good deed. Wow. And you saw the quote in the, in the bulletin that dealt with that verse. The context of that verse, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you may abound for every good deed. The context is giving money to the work of the Lord. In fact, they almost robbed themselves in order to give. One writer says, their joy rose above the pain, sorrow, struggle of difficult circumstances. Ray Stedman says, one of the true marks of a heart that has truly been touched by the grace of God is this. It counts giving a privilege. The Macedonians had an attitude toward God that God wants us all to have. Unhindered joy that remembers the blessing of laying up treasures in heaven, not on earth, of giving rather than receiving. We will give joyfully. We will give sacrificially. As we have already mentioned, the Macedonians faced seemingly insurmountable uh, difficulties. And you would, that should have discouraged them from saying, Paul, don't, don't bother talking to us about giving to the church in Jerusalem. We got our own issues to deal with here. But according to their ability and beyond their ability, and such willingness did not come because they had cast a spare. They didn't. It came because of a rich attitude of liberality. The word liberality can be translated single-mindedness, single-mindedness. See, when we are double-minded in our giving, we worry too much about our own needs and our own desires. We vacillate between spending money on ourselves and giving it to the work of the Lord. There's something we really, really, really want. We think we have a right to have it, and so we savor it. And then we have a a double-mindedness about giving it to God's work. How do you win the battle? How do you win over this double-mindedness? Well, I'll tell you the way 
Carol and I have done it in our lives. Based on the conviction of the teaching of the Bible, there's no um, wiggle room here, none. Based upon an overwhelming sense of gratitude for the grace of God in so many ways in our lives. Based upon a commitment that we don't stray from ever, the first part of the check goes to the church and to missions right off the top. What if you have expenses? What if your water heater goes as it did a few weeks ago? You put it on visa or you take out of your savings, but you don't rob God to pay for it. And it scarcely, in fact, it doesn't affect your lifestyle because you've learned to be content and therefore you're not necessarily wanting something bigger, better, newer anyways. And you see the incredible joy of God using that in the lives of other people. Now, God does not expect us to give what we don't have, but he demands that we give generously from what we do have, verse 11. But now finish doing it also so that just as there was readiness and desire, there will also be the, the, uh, the completion of your ability. Uh, for this is not to ease, uh, for this is not to ease of others and for your uh, affliction, but by way of equality. And earlier on, it says that we are to give not out of what we don't have, but about, out of what we, what we do have. Give enthusiastically and voluntarily. I, I, like, I like this in chapter 8, verse 3. They gave of their own accord, begging us. Notice, it's them begging Paul with much urging for the favor of participation in support of the saints. And this not as we had expected. Maybe Paul said, okay, give a little bit. They gave way beyond that little bit. So it was not a matter of pressure being put on them by the Apostle Paul. They are urgently pleading with Paul, let us give. Paul did not beg, coerce, shame, manipulate, intimidate, or threaten. The begging came not from Paul, but from them. Paul, let us participate. Grace giving is always willing, eager, voluntary, and spontaneous. No pressure, no bribes, no promise as the prosperity gospel, which is a false gospel. No promise. You plant this seed money of $1,000 and God will give you $10,000. That's nonsense. That is not what the Bible teaches. We do not give to become rich that way. We give to become rich in many other ways. Wiersbe says, Grace not only frees us from our sins, but it frees us from ourselves. We give worshipfully. Again, we have another key. In verse 5, they first gave themselves to the Lord, to the Lord, and to us by the will of God. When we give ourselves to the Lord, all we have, all we are, belongs to him. Wiersbe says, if we give ourselves to God, we will have little problem giving our substance to God. If we give ourselves to God, we'll also give ourselves to others. It's impossible to love God and ignore the needs of your neighbor. Now, some people say, well, I give my time and my talent. That's my tithe. I don't tithe my money. I tithe my time and my talent. 
The Bible does not permit us to do that. Notice verse 7. Just as you abound in everything in faith, in utterance, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work, the giving of money to meet the needs of other people. For those who say, I tithe my, I tithe my time and my talent, I say, well, how does the church pay the bills? How do we support missionaries? How do we do anything in ministry that, co- that costs money if we just tithe our time? So giving to the work of the Lord is not optional. Verse 9 is a marvelous verse, very similar to the one, verse 8 in chapter 9. Here we get down now to the root. The root cause and motivation for giving is right there. It's the sacrifice of Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. Ray Stedman says, this little gem of a verse defies exposition. Jesus is a supreme example of giving. He is the ultimate model of sacrifice and love. This is talking about his incarnation, about becoming man, about dying on the cross for our sins. He died to make us rich, not with money, but with faith and hope and love and peace and compassion and forgiveness and mercy. That's what really satisfies the soul, not money. You can't get any richer than Romans 8, 17. Heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. Wow. How can we refuse to give when God, through Christ, has given so much to us? Piper says, Jesus Christ is God Almighty through whom the universe was made, who upholds all things by his power. He has existed as the glorious, perfect, happy second person of the Trinity from all eternity. It was from this infinite height that he performed the unimaginable condescension to be born in a cattle stall, to die on a criminal's cross in order that we may be made rich, not rich in money, but rich in joy, rich in liberality, and rich in love. This is the grace that transforms our hearts and our desires and our pursuits in life. Verse 9 here removes selfishness from our lives because it takes away the root of selfishness. And the root of selfishness is this. I will be more happy if I buy this. I'll be more happy if I can have this for myself. That verse destroys that desire to think that my happiness and satisfaction is in material things. It isn't. It isn't. God values joyful, loving generosity so much that he gave his son to create it in our hearts. So joyful, generous giving is to reflect the sovereignty of God. He owns everything. He rules over everything. So we need to hand over very purposely, deliberately, the the area of finances of our personal lives to God and make sure, people, make sure 
that your understanding of money and possessions, and I'll talk about this more next week, is shaped by the word and not by the world. The sovereignty of God and the grace of God. He has showered his favor upon us in so many ways. He has saved us by his grace. And that grace will profoundly change our heart's desires and profoundly affect how we use our time, our talent, and our treasure. This grace, when it works within us, delivers us from the soul-destroying grip of materialism. We receive from the Lord the gift of contentment, the gift of gratitude. And when we are content and when we are grateful, we will be generous. So let's go right back to the cross in our thinking and say, what impact has this had on the way I give? And I think for most of it, it has had a profound effect upon our lives. And what we give, we do not miss. We do not miss. It's, it's given, and our lifestyles continue on. But God's work, missions, and the ministry of this church is greatly, greatly blessed. Let me read to you again the verse I chose last year. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything you may abound for every good deed. Let us pray. Lord, the Christian life is all about grace. All about grace. Your undeserved mercy to us in Christ. Lord, may it take hold of us. May it grip our minds and our hearts and our affections. May it enable us to resist the culture we live in and the seductions of materialism and I feel it as much as anybody in our culture may we say no to that and yes to Christ and yes to the cross and yes to generous joyful giving for the glory of your awesome name we pray this in Christ's name Amen